All right, let's pray. Father, we're thankful and glad to be uh, together as believers, wielding the keys of the kingdom uh, together jointly. We pray for uh, your blessing on our time together, our fellowship, uh, our rest. We pray that uh, both in this hour and the next, that what we do would be pleasing to you and not just merely informative, but would help lead us to worship in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, and so uh, if you'll recall, oh wait, let me make one caveat. By raise of hands, who was here for the the Sunday school video that I had y'all watch the last time? Okay, so if I'm not going to ask for a second raise of hands, okay, but if I were to ask for a second raise of hands about uh, how many people fully grasped the content of that video there would be comparatively far fewer hands go up. Um, And I knew that was the case before I showed the video. So do not worry. Do not be concerned. Um, As I was talking to one uh, one sister who was saying, I just didn't get it. I was like, part of my whole point is to say exactly. Maybe we shouldn't start our exegesis on the foundation of contested metaphysics and philosophy of free will maybe we should start with the clarity of scripture and hermeneutics and once we figure out what the bible says then we can avail ourselves of whatever philosophical solutions happen to be present okay and so is your if you as you're uh, engaging with people on the on the issues of god's sovereignty and free will and moral responsibility please know that the person who advocates for whatever free will is carries a tremendous burden of proof themselves just to articulate what it is and how it's coherent. So that was part of the burden of that. It's okay if you didn't understand it. Taylor Sear is a great philosopher, by the way, if you're interested in uh, more philosophy of free will and moral responsibility. He does have a podcast on YouTube called The Free Will Show, and he does bring the top philosophers in the world uh, to talk about certain topics at a basic and a more advanced level. Okay, having moved on from that, though, we started Perseverance. We've already looked at 17.1 and 2 of the confession. And so what, what's going to happen now at this point is going to be the verse dump, okay? The verse dump. We already read this. This is a recycled slide. Um, and, and I want you to... Let's make sure I have a second one there. There we go. Um, I want you to see it in the text. We know what the confession says. We've read it. We've talked about it. Uh, but I want you to hear some of this from the text of Scripture. Many of these passages are not going to be a surprise to anyone. My guess is in most cases you're not going to hear a new proof text for the perseverance of the saints. But nevertheless, we need to ground ourselves in Scripture. And then we're going to look at some caveats after that and and start... Uh, after, after those two things, we will start looking at the admonition and warning passages, and we will look at diff- five different views on how to how do you how do you understand the warning passages and the conditional, the if passages of Scripture, if the salvation of the believer is certain. Okay, so that's the task. All right, so I hope everyone has their thumbs ready to scroll on their device or open their Bible because we're going to auction off. These texts, which people will excitedly and enthusiastically read. Okay, Jeremiah 32, 40, Asher. There is no one I can count on more than Asher Zeliot 
Look to this young man as an inspiration in this class. Jeremiah 32, 40. Josh, John 6, 44. John 10, 28 and 29. Who wants that? Chris. Romans 5, 9 and 10. Right here. And, uh, well, Romans, the golden chain, Romans 8.30. It's like a proof text for like four different things. Who wants to read the golden chain in Romans 8.30? Steve, it's my good man. Good to see you, buddy. Did you just sit down? No, you've been here. I'm sorry. I just said you're paying attention. Ephesians 1.13 and 14. Yes, right here, Mike. 1 Peter 1.3-5. Oh, First, I, I skipped. I skipped it. Yeah, Philippians one six. Since you corrected me, you get to read that one. You get to read First uh, Peter one three three five. We got two more. First John two nineteen. Crystal over here, and then I saw a hand. Romans four twenty five. Christian. Okay. So you know my policy for reading: read with a nice, loud voice and a little bit of velocity. And uh, I just want you to listen to these texts. You know, I understand a verse dump sounds like a verse dump, but I want you to listen to this theme in the scriptures. All right, Asher Dasher, fire away, young buck. Okay, so the idea even coming out of the Old Testament is there's going to be a covenant that's everlasting and that God is going to be the active player here. Did you hear anything in that particular passage about repentance and belief or anything like that? No, not, and it's not because it's not involved, but it's because God is the active player securing an everlasting covenant and fear of the Lord in people's hearts. Okay, Jeremiah 32, 4. That's our expectation, a better covenant, a covenant that can't be broken coming into, into the New Testament. Okay, John 6.44, another proof text for about three different things. Who's got that? Yes. Yeah, that's you. No one will come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. Okay, there's a similar text further down, but the point it seems to be clear. Who, everyone who is drawn, and we talked about this when we talked about effectual calling, everyone who is drawn is raised up. There's no dropouts, as John Piper likes to say. And he'll, he says that in Romans 8.30. No dropouts. Everyone who is drawn, no one who comes to me, no one comes to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and out of the group who are drawn to Jesus, everyone is raised up on the last day. Everyone is, experiences eschatological, end-time salvation. So everyone who is drawn endures to the end. Okay? Romans 10, I'm sorry, uh, John 10, 28 through 29. Excellent. Again, do you see do you see repentance and belief in there? Do you see obedience in there? No, you don't. It's not because that's not part of the Christian life. It's very important. We're going to talk about it in one second. But the idea is God's active role in preserving the believer. No one can snatch them out of my hand. They've been given to me. I am guarding them. No one can take them. They are on lockdown. That is the idea of the perseverance of the saints. Okay? We are being guarded by God. This language is going to come up in just a second. Romans 5, 9 and 10. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more 
Okay, so so you you, you get a pick one of Paul's kind of least less to the greater arguments here, and he talks about initial justification, people who have been saved, but he holds out the promise of something more. If this has accomplished this, how much more will this happen down the road? That's the that's the picture there. If this brought about this, if death brought about reconciliation. How much more? And then he fills in the eschatological promise. The eschatological promise that, that people will be raised from the dead, that there will be ultimate reconciliation, that we'll experience eternal life in Christ. That's very typical of Paul to argue in this way. If this, then how much more this? All right, the golden chain, Romans 8.30. The idea here, again, you and I aren't showing, don't show up in this passage in an active role. We show up in a passive role. And everyone who is justified is glorified. That's why it's the golden. There's no dropouts. Are you justified? Yes. Okay. Everyone who's justified is glorified. Everyone who is truly declared righteous before God will be raised in righteousness before God. That's the idea. Ephesians 1, 13 and 14. Okay, so there's an inheritance awaiting the believer, as I understand it. Okay, but guess what? As we just heard, it's a guaranteed inheritance. Well, that's interesting. It sounds like there's. There's not a chance that you could lose that inheritance through some messy probate situation or something like that. And that there is a seal working toward that guarantee, and that is the Holy Spirit. So if you have the Holy Spirit, you have the seal, you have the guarantee of an inheritance that's coming. And that's the idea, that that inheritance is guaranteed believers, those who in fact have the Holy Spirit, because the Holy Spirit is not just someone who is the paraclete, the helper, but is the seal and is the guarantor of an inheritance that is being kept for us. Okay, kept for us. Hold that thought while we read. Actually, you know what? Let's read this, and I'm going to go out of order here. We'll come back to Philippians 1.6. I won't forget it again. 1 Peter 1, 3 through 5, though. Blessed be God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy hath caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you, who are protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Beautiful. So salvation. Again, we talked about this the last last sermon, the second application point of the last sermon, which I looked out and saw people like, what is he talking about? This eschatological aspect of justification, is, uh, it, we, we hear it talked about here. There is a salvation. It's like, I'm already saved though, right? Well, hold on. It says that your salvation is waiting to be revealed. So salvation is this longer, this more encompassing New Testament category that isn't just this punctiliar moment of justification of saved. It's uh, it, it, salvation is something that is being worked out, which is why Paul can say in Philippians, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. 
It didn't say work out your justification, work out becoming righteous before God, anything like that. But there is this, there's this larger picture of salvation. It says there's a salvation that's waiting. And guess what? If, if you were listening carefully to what Glenn said, it says that you are being, it's being guarded for you, right? Can you read that part one more time? Because I talked too much in between the reading and, and that part. So my faith, I'm being protected by God through my faith, okay? Not meaning that, not meaning that I, I, I'm the one who brings the faith to the table, then that wouldn't be protection. I'd be protecting myself. But the idea is that God is the one protecting me for an inheritance, for a salvation that is not yet here. God is playing defense on my inheritance and on my salvation that is going to be revealed. And folks, let me just say, that's very good news. Because in, in the terms of soccer and the keeper, God posts clean sheets. He doesn't get scored on, okay? God is playing defense on your salvation and defense on your inheritance, and you are being protected and guarding, guarded by God for that. How much sense does it even, I mean, it says it in black and white, but how much just common sense does it make to say, yeah, and, you know, the people who are getting, being guarded by God for the inheritance get taken away and they get plucked out of his hand. But it's just the opposite of what we see. It's the exact opposite of the plain text of Scripture. Okay, Philippians 1.6. Now I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion in the day of Jesus Christ. Okay, so again, you hear eschatological salvation again? At the day of Jesus Christ. That's a day that is coming. There is a work that has begun in you, and Paul says, I'm confident of this. The work will come to completion. It won't get cut off like the road projects here around Nashville. Okay? It will be, it is something that has started. He has confidence that it will continue and it will be completed unto the day of the Lord Jesus Christ. Or in other words, those who he's talking to, Christians, will see the final judgment. And for them, it will, well, of course, everyone will see the final judgment. For them, it will be a judgment unto life, like we saw last week. 1 John 2.19, a very tidy verse to have tucked in your back pocket when you're talking about perseverance. 1 John 2.19. Huh? Okay, yes. I, I switched. I did them backwards. I already did for the first Peter one. I did them out of order. I did first Peter and then Philippians one. Yes, 1 John 2.19, they went out from us, but they were not of us. Well, how do you know that? For if they were of us, they would have continued with us. But they're, by their going out, they made it plain that not, not all are of us. What is, 1 John 2.19 puts endurance as a necessary condition for actually being a disciple of Jesus Christ. People who go out from the faith demonstrate they weren't actually in. That's the point of 1 John 2.19. People who go out demonstrate that not everyone was at, that they not everyone who claims to be in is actually in. And we know that because there are people who go out, but if they were actually of us, they would have stayed. In other words, Christians endure. And then finally, Romans 4.25. This is the one from last week. I'm just going to talk about 30 seconds on it and move on. Romans 4.25. Oh, you know what? I'm sorry. Can you do 23 through 25? I'm sorry. I'm sorry. 23 through 20. Just a little bit more context.
Jesus Christ was raised for our justification. Okay, so I talked about this last term. This is, I'm suggesting that the nature of justification, just like almost every other piece of New Testament theology, is the future that has broken into the present. Do you have eternal life? Feels like a trick question, doesn't it? Well, are you going to die? Yes. But will you yet live? Yes. Have you been raised up with Christ? Uh, well, I read Ephesians 2. It's like, yeah, been raised. I was dead in sin. was raised up, but, but you haven't had a resurrection body yet. Huh. Wait a second. There, you go through the New Testament over and over and over. These things that everyone, like, including people like John the Baptist and all his confusion, were expecting to happen right when Jesus came. Okay? Um, have happened, but they've happened in a way that have just truly happened, but they have not fully happened. And I'm suggesting that justification is just one more of those things. It's not two different kinds of justification, but justification, especially as every Jew would have understood it, is an end-time declaration, primarily. The whole scandal of Jesus Christ is that he received an, a verdict of not guilty, righteous, in the middle of history. In the middle of history. He was raised up in vindication of who, the kind of man that he was and who he claimed to be. For everyone else, that awaits the end. But what I'm suggesting is that in justification, what it means that Jesus was raised to life for our justification is that in justification, a verdict from the end has already been declared over you. So logically speaking, it's something that comes, and I'm not c committing myself to some realist view of the future, like the future is some something out there that, in a big space-time block. Uh, I'm just using that as a, a kind of analogical language uh, that what has been declared over you as not... And by the way, isn't that what election is? Election is something like, I'm, I'm, you're, it's been declared over you who's going to stand in the final judgment. In other words, it's something that, that, is, that comes prior to final judgment, but it has the end in mind has the end in mind. It's backed up. And I made the best example I have, I think, is the advance, the paycheck advance that I gave last Sunday. You get an advance on your paycheck. Why can you get an advance on your paycheck? It's not payday yet because it's already coming to you. That's what an advance is on your payday, on, on your paycheck. Okay? I can get it now because it's already coming to me. It's already scheduled for me. And I'm saying that justification being declared not guilty on the basis of someone else's righteousness, namely Christ, and our union with him, what happens is we put our, ten, our, our, our ear to that kind of tin can telephone intercom, and we hear from the future before the nations not guilty over us in the present. Okay? That is the idea. That's the argument for eternal security you likely have not heard from the nature of justification. And if, that's, if justification is eschatologically oriented, which I be believe it is certainly, I don't think anything, Paul and Jesus don't do anything to overturn that. Jesus himself says, by your words, you will be justified. There's no conflict with that. And justification by faith, imputed righteousness of Christ. He's talking about an end time justification. Um, who followed Jesus? Who's fruitful on the foundation of Christ's righteousness? Okay. Any questions about that first set of texts before we go on to some of these caveats? Yes, sir. Yeah. Here, read it for us. It says, Most assuredly I say to you, 
Mm, there you go. Great. And John is great. Yeah. Mm. Has, yeah. Present tense. Good. Yes. Yeah. Because, it, yeah, I mean, ha yeah, that, that's exactly right. It's something that you have currently. Yeah. Thank you for sharing that. Yeah. Certainly is. All right, any other questions about that set of texts? All right, let's go to the next set of texts, which I'm calling the caveats. And let me read this because I, I said we'd read this. I'm not sure we've read this part of the confession yet. And they crafted this very well. And though they may, talking about the saints, through the temptation of Satan and of the world, the prevalency of corruption remaining in them, meaning indwelling sin, and neglect of means of their preservation, fall into grievous sins. And for a time, continue therein, whereby they incur God's displeasure and grieve His Holy Spirit, come to have their graces and comforts impaired, have their hearts hardened and their consciences wounded, hurt and scandalize others, and bring temporal judgments upon themselves. Oh, let's just pause before I read that last clause. They're making a lot of provision for believers stumbling hard. Hard. Having hardened hearts in certain areas, blind spots, horrible oversights, graces removed from their life, and yet they shall renew their repentance and be preserved through faith in Christ Jesus to the end. And what I would suggest is the fundamental reason for that isn't because they're just great people or real smart or they figured it out. It's because all of the active role that you heard God playing in all the first set of texts. Because God is the one who holds fast. He's the anchor of the soul. And all who call, call to him, are not, they're never going to be snatched out of his hand. All right, but let's look at some of these caveat verses so, we're, so we have a kind of well-rounded understanding here. So a couple of uh, what, comparatively shorter list of verses to auction off. Psalm 32, 3 through 5, Asher, yes. Before you even put your hand up, I got it, I got it. Yeah, yes, you may read. Uh, Psalm 32, 3 through 5. Psalm 51, 10 through 12. <laughs> I think everyone remembers, most people remember Psalm, the context of Psalm 51. Proverbs 3, 11 and 12. Proverbs 3, 11 and 12, crystal. Uh, Matthew 26, 69 through 75. Christian. And then Ephesians 4, 30. Ephesians 4, 30. Laura, yes. Laura is happy to read Ephesians 4.30. Okay, Glenn pointed to you, so it's his fault there, Laura. Oh, that's <laughs> what, what you get for sitting next to your son there. Okay. All right, so with a nice loud voice and a little bit of velocity, just like last time, everyone did a great job. Let's hear some of these, what I'm just calling, for lack of a better word, however you want to couch this, caveats about the perseverance of the believer. All right. Asher. Mm-hmm. 
Okay, so the psalmist is talking about the chastening hand of God on his life. And this is not something that's just unique to Psalm uh, 32. You go through the Psalms and it's this, why is your hand so heavy upon me? Why are you chastising me? And some, in some cases, um, in fact, I would say more so than not, we don't get an answer to that. It's not like, well, I knew I was in sin and this and that, like we just heard. Sometimes it's, Lord, you know, but the Lord saves his own. Trust in the Lord and the psalm ends. This case, we get a picture, we get a sneak peek of what's going on here in that kind of chastening because of my sin. All right, Psalm 51, 10 through 12. Excellent. And what's the context of Psalm 51? Someone say it out loud. David, what? Well, David doing what? Yeah. So David, murder, adultery. Yeah. Awful. And yet, David, man after God's own heart. Right? Davidic covenant. Finest king that Israel ever had. Before Christ, obviously. And yet, you get this snapshot of how he is pleading with the Lord after his sin. Proverbs 3, 11 through 12. My son, do not despise the Lord's discipline or be weary of his reproof. For the Lord reproves him whom he loves, as a father of son whom he delights. I'm talking about the fatherly chastening of God. So Christians are not going to incur judgment, the wrath of God. There's no, there's no punishment in the, let me put it this way, there's no punishment in the life of, of the believer required by justice. There's no punishment in the life of the believer that's required by God's justice. That was taken care of at the cross. The punishment in the life of the believer is God's fatherly chastening, like I discipline my own children because I love them. And I even explained that to them. And that's what you get here. Don't, don't, I had to tell my son the other day, son, when, when daddy punishes you, it's not because I love you any less or I'm even upset. It's because I'm helping form you into a young man. Okay? And this isn't how we behave in our house. And it's not how we behave in God's family. It's kind of our motif in our house, the family of God. Um, you know, and he, he, uh, seemed to grasp that, gave me a big hug, and wasn't even mad. I mean, the, the idea is there's something about um, chastening that no one likes. No one enjoys it, and yet the Lord disciplines those he loves because it's for our good. So we can feel the chastening hand of God in our lives. And let me just add one caveat. There are some people hear that proverb and kind of understand this chastening reality and every time there's someone who kind of struggles with doubt or self-condemnation and every time something happens they think what have i done like every single instance of suffering or like bad news or hardship is because of their sin their sin just keeps bringing on the next thing and they go on this kind of spiritual scavenger hunt to figure out why things are going badly really want to preserve you from that okay it's not to suggest that everything that is cha every challenge, every difficulty, every illness, every whatever 
is because you, is, you know, is because you sinned and you're getting chastened for it. Okay, not a not a great way to think about every challenge of life. Okay, Matthew twenty six sixty nine through seventy five. So, of course, we wish that Peter's denial of Christ was some kind of unique event in the history of the church, but it is, in fact, not. You can go back and read the controversies in the early church about the lapsed and people uh, 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 kind of recanting under the threat of persecution and all the rest of it. And, um, and nevertheless, Peter serves as a fine example of someone who, despite stumbling, was held fast despite stumbling, was held fast by God. Finally, Ephesians 4.30. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you were sealed in the day of redemption. All right. So the idea is we can, by our sin, grieve the Holy Spirit. That's something that we can do. The Holy Spirit is in us. We are declared righteous by God, and nevertheless... Our sinfulness and our actions, in addition to being able to marshal forth fatherly chastening of God, can grieve the Holy Spirit. But don't you love that? Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were, what? Sealed for the day of redemption. By which you were sealed. Do not grieve the thing that guarantees your inheritance. You don't see any conditionality here. But you do see that you can, you, we can, in fact, grieve God by our sin. Okay? All right. So I want to, any questions about those, that particular set of passages? All right. Well, I want to read one more set, and we may get into the responses. That we might land the plane just before it. Maybe we'll get into the first one. One more set of passages. These have, so I, 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 let me just back up. I, I understand myself to have now discharged my uh, responsibility to seek to, to articulate texts that support this doctrine of perseverance and the security of the believer. Certainly more texts could be turned to as a representative sample, but we've looked at the claim of perseverance in the confession, and we've seen evidence in it of it uh, in the text of Scripture. Okay, so that's kind of step one. We're now moving to step two. What might someone say in response to some of the things that we have said here? And so uh, I'm going to suggest that there are really five ways, five views, and I'm not going to deep dive into each of them, but you need to <laughs> I feel like you need to know what they are. Um, and, but we need to pick out some, um, some texts here that are going to kind of be our tests, our test texts as we look at some of these positions that might call into question the security of the believer, namely the admonition and warning passages. And so 
I've picked four passages to kind of just be our, yeah, to kind of ground us in this category of text. And so if I get four more readers, no one will have to read the rest of the time, the last five minutes, no one will have to read anything. Yes, so Glenn will read Matthew, Matthew 10, 32 through 33, Mark 13, 13, Josh, 1 Corinthians 6, 9, and 10, Chris, and Hebrews 10, 26 through 29. Yes, Asher, there you are. Okay. Glenn. Therefore, everyone who confesses me before men, I will also confess him before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I will also deny him before my Father who is in heaven. So how are we, what are we supposed to make of that? I and mean, if I'm a Christian and I deny God, it says that I'm going to get denied by God. Sure seems like, perhaps, I'm, my salvation isn't quite on the same kind of lockdown. Why would it say that otherwise? Mark 13, 13. And you will be hated by all for my name's sake, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. Who's the one who is saved? Only if you endure. If you endure, you'll be saved. So what happens if I don't endure? Oh. What happens if I don't endure? Got to tell some story about that, right? 1 Corinthians 6, 9 and 10. This is one of these vice lists. Okay, so if I repent and believe the gospel, I'm a Christian, all of a sudden I plunge headlong into these things, doesn't seem like the kingdom's for me, doesn't seem like I will inherit the kingdom of God according to that passage. And then finally, and most pronounced, Hebrews 10, 26 through 29. Well, so man, someone who's received the knowledge of truth, someone who's been set apart, sanctified by God, if you keep sinning, it's not going to go well for you. I mean, if people were put to death under two or three witnesses under Moses, and you cannot hear this Pauline less the greater, how much more so? How much more so, more harshly, is the person going to be treated who profanes the blood of the covenant by which they were sanctified in outraged spirit of grace? So what do, what are, how, do we, how do we address the admonition passages, the conditional passages, the warning passages? Um, we've got, I've got five minutes, so let me just go through the first two responses. The first response that I'm not going to spend any time on because of all the rest of the texts is conditional salvation. Conditional salvation. This is just the denial 
Uh, this is the typical Arminian view, you might say, Wesleyan view. Arminius and then I. Howard Marshall would be probably, uh, I. I. Howard Marshall would be one of them, uh, one of the top scholars who would hold this view. And that is simply, how do we address these passages? Admonition and warning passages clarify that one can lose their salvation and their true and that their salvation is conditional upon obedience. Okay? Grace gets you in. Obedience keeps you in. That's the idea. And that you can in fact peep, that that you can have a genuine Christian who becomes apostate and walks away from the faith. I don't think this interpretation is right at all. Um, of, of the warnings, and one of those is because all of the passages we just read. And so this kind of end of the spectrum has to go back and reinterpret all those in a way that somehow comport with the idea that, no, you can get snatched out of God's hand. No, not all who are justified are glorified. No, not everyone who is drawn is, drawn is raised up. And they have to go back and try to tell a story, and almost without exception, I'm just going to spo spoiler alert here, when you dig in, has to do with a view of free will. See the first lecture. Okay. I'm, that's all I'm going to say about this particular one. We'll, go, we'll deep dive into some of the other ones a little bit more. But here's this incredible doodle that I did for y'all. Uh, and uh, and uh, here's what the doodle suggests. We're talking about running the race. Running the race. I'm going to have a doodle for each of these views. And this one says that the warnings and admonitions raise doubts of receiving the prize, with the already being kind of where we are now, the not yet being final judgment. The prize is a, a salvation, eternal life. We're all in the race, and the warnings and admonitions think not everyone's going to make it. Who's genuinely in the race? Genuinely in the race. That's the first view. Okay? And I would say it's refuted by all the things that we just suggested, but we'll talk about more about it. The second view here, and this is the last one we look at today, because time is short, is a much more prevalent view, and it is the loss of rewards view. Robert Wilkins, Zane Hodges, I was shocked to hear Charles Stanley holds this view. Uh, but the loss of rewards view uh, is held by folks who are, by and large, Reformed in many cases, at least. Sometimes you have your once saved, always say your OSAS, Arminian crowd holding this view, but you have many Reformed folks who do as well. And I think it's just a, it's a very popular level view. Not very popular in academia. But here it is. The admonition and warning passages clarify that believers can truly suffer eternal loss, but not eternal damnation. Failure to obey as a Christian may result in a costly loss of heavenly rewards, but no matter how one lives, they cannot lose their salvation. Okay? Uh, this is the view of the Grace evangel Evangelical Society. Some of you have heard of the Free Grace Movement. Okay? This is the idea that... Uh, some, have you ever heard of Lordship Salvation? Who's heard of Lordship Salvation? Okay, this, is, this view says lordship salvation is wrong. Jesus can be your savior, okay? But you don't have to live under him as, as, as lord because that undercuts grace. And, of course, the proof text that uh, uh, these folks always go to 
is found in 1 Corinthians and Paul's foundation that he lays that everyone builds on. Um, give me one second here. Duh, 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 duh. According to the 1 Corinthians 3, according to the grace of God given to me like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation and someone else is building upon it. Let each one take care how he builds upon it. For no one can lay a foundation other than which is laid, which is Christ. Now, if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become manifest for the day, that is the eschatological day of the Lord, will disclose it because it, was revealed by, because it will be revealed by fire and the fire will test what sort of work each has done. And if uh, the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss. That's the loss. He'll suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. And so the idea here is that they're, they're, not everyone has the exact same manner of rewards in heaven. I think it was Edwards who said everyone's cup overflows in heaven, but people have different size cups. Is that Edwards? Did I just make that up? Someone tell me later. Something like that. Okay. Uh, and the idea here is your the way you live life can sacrifice your rewards. Your, your works may be burned up. Your fruitfulness may be non-existent. But you will be saved even though all your works don't give you uh, any extra reward in heaven. Charles Stanley, shockingly to conclude, says it like, oh, here's, the, here's my doodle for you. Um, the warnings and admonitions raise doubts of receiving the prize, but the prize is not salvation. Okay? It's rewards. So all of the if passages, all of the threat passages in the New Testament don't have to do with uh, eternal salvation, including the 1 Corinthians 6 passage, those who do all these things will not inherit the kingdom of God. That, on their understanding, the kingdom of God does not mean something like eternal salvation, the eschatological kingdom of God. They reinterpret that uh, to mean something else, which isn't plausible. Listen to uh, Charles Stanley here. Even if a believer, for all practical purposes, becomes an unbeliever, his salvation is not in jeopardy. Believers who lose or abandon their faith will retain their salvation, for God retain, remains faithful. Okay, second view of how to understand the warning, admonition, and conditional passages. We'll pick up next time as we continue on looking at uh, how to understand the warnings and try to come to some, some conclusions that I think takes things a little bit more seriously. Let's pray. Uh, Father, we're thankful to have studied your word. We're thankful we have a God who holds us fast because otherwise we would be everywhere else. We would. We pray that you would point out our blind spots. We pray that you would not you know, refuse to discipline us as children. We want to be a holy people. We want to love one another well and love you well. We pray that as we think about these things, it would spur us on toward that end. Bless us in our next hour, we ask in the name of Jesus. Amen.